to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, welcome to the show. I have a flagging mic here. There you go. Hi, how you doing? Welcome, it's Friday. It's my last day till a week from Monday. I'm taking next week off. I need some R&R. I need to get away from <clears throat> this and uh, you know who. And I was, I, geez, I just came upon something that I, I want to share with you, mostly because I want to finish reading it. <laughs> so this way we'll all get to, I've heard of this guy, but I guess I didn't, how did this escape me? The guy's name is Mo. Berg, <laughs> Mo Berg. Uh, his real name apparently was Morris, although I just read somewhere that it might in fact have been Moses. Who knows? A lot of mystery around this guy. He was a um, he was a baseball professional baseball player in the twenties and thirties, and uh, played for the uh, I think mostly the Washington Senators, and he was a catcher. Mo. Berg, son of uh, Jewish immigrants, um, but <laughs> there's apparently, um, there have been a lot of books written about him, a lot of documentaries made, and I think this story is because there's another documentary being made, the sense being that no one's ever really captured this sort of elusive character, and um, I just, just listen to this snippet. Okay, so he was a, a professional baseball player. Um, he spoke as many as 12 languages. He became a radio quiz show sensation. He extracted a key Italian aerodynamics expert from behind enemy lines during World War II. He was apparently an extraordinary spy for the Americans. Whether, I don't think the base, being a catcher in Major League Baseball had anything to do with his being a spy, but this guy is so unbelievable that, you know, uh, he was sent by um, our intelligence services uh, during World War II to suss out the Nazi bomb development program and, if necessary, assassinate the German nuclear genius, genius Werner Heisenberg. Jeez. And it says that, you know, people from spy buffs to filmmakers have obsessed over him. And how come, how come somebody like this have escaped my attention? I, I knew the name. And I think I vaguely knew that maybe he'd been a spy. But uh, this article, which I was just reading from the Washington Post, is, is, uh, is amazing. Um, he was said to have a photographic memory. I mean, he was just made to be a spy. Uh, practiced in deception from childhood. Uh, he assumed a fake name as a child so that he could play baseball on a Christian League baseball team. Uh, because there were no Jewish <laughs> teams um, at the time. 
Uh, whole parts of his life are sort of open to question uh, where he lived in certain times of his life. His sexuality was in question. Uh, some say he began working as a spy as early as 1934, so before and when he was still playing baseball. Because in 34, he traveled with an all-star team of Amer uh, uh, American baseball all-star team, including Babe Ruth and uh, Lou Gehrig. And all those guys and Mo Berg went off to uh, Japan. So this is 1934. It's, um, you know, before Pearl Harbor. And it says this, in Tokyo... He put on a men's kimono, and there are pictures of him in this, and he walked to a hospital in his kimono <clears throat> under the pretense of visiting the, um, the sick daughter of the U.S. ambassador. <clears throat> oh, she wasn't sick. She had just given birth, excuse me. Rather than ever making it to her hospital room, he ditched the f bouquet of flowers he had been carrying uh, to her and made his way up to the roof of the hospital, which was at that time the tallest building in Tokyo. And he pulled out from under his flowing kimono a Bell and Howell camera and um, in direct uh, flouting of the Japanese rules that no photos or films could be made by anyone during the visit, he made a panoramic film of uh, the entire Tokyo cityscape that later, of course, ended up in the hands of our, our military and was possibly, in fact, used uh, in targeting uh, for bombing raids. Incredible. So he gets, uh, he gets recruited by the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, and um, he was given what many considered an impossible task, which was to find Antonio Ferry, who was an Italian aerodynamics expert who had gone into hiding and who had been privy uh, to the secret workings of German scientists connected to the Nazi uh, nuclear program. So his job was to find this guy who I guess a lot of people might have been looking for. And he found him. So he spoke passable Italian. And, um, and he got hold of a whole bunch of hidden documents. Can we read a little more? This guy fascinating. God. It's certainly more fascinating than anything I have here. Blah. 
says here that Moe's scariest wartime adventure uh, required uh, him to sort of literally fade into the background. He traveled to Switzerland, which was neutral, posed as a student. He went, supposedly, to hear a lecture by this Heisenberg, the German nuclear scientist, and he was there to supposedly assess Heisenberg's uh, progress in this nuclear field, and if he deemed that it necessary because it appeared Heisenberg was getting too close to a nuclear weaponry, that he was to assassinate him. Somehow, Moberg ends up, again, posing as a student. He gets himself right up alongside Heisenberg after the lecture and managed to take a walk with him after a dinner party. And in that walk, Moberg uh, concluded that uh, Heisenberg uh, was not going to be assassinated by him because it, cl it was clear to Berg that he had a long way to go before he was going to develop the bomb. Uh, I don't know, just incredible. He was uh, eventually uh, given a Major League Baseball gave him a lifetime pass. He was awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1945 after the war, but he refused to accept it and never explained why. And um, his ashes were, he died at the age of 70. His ashes were brought to Israel. There are some pretty amazing lives, aren't there? <laughs> some people. Now, if Trump were president, he would not have let his family in to the country, so Moberg never would have had a... No, because they were not educated people by virtue of their position in life. Um, they didn't have the opportunity. But it turns out if they had been educated, they too probably would have been geniuses because God knows their sons seem to have been sort of incredibly good at anything he tried. Mo Berg, Major League Baseball player. Uh, if you will indulge me, I'm going to stay because Mo Berg was, um, was Jewish. I want to I want to stay on on a a Jewish theme for a, for a second. I have a few stories here that that dovetail and I just realized that. But first we have a we have a caller. Caller, go ahead please. Lynn? Yes. Uh, hi Lynn. 
there's a really good book about Mo Berg. It's called uh, like something something Catcher Spy, and I read it quite a while ago. You can pick it up in the library. Okay. But this guy, he really was something. He spoke fluent Japanese. That's how he could finagle his way around Tokyo. That all-star team that he was on had the likes of like Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and he was like. I don't even know if you'd call him a so-so baseball player. And it was wondered, why didn't the Japanese think, what's this guy doing on his team? You know, he can't hit. He's, you know, he's like a nobody baseball player, but here he is with all these superstars. Well, that's what he was there for, to, you know, get information on the Japanese. And anyway, I recommend this book highly. It's really, the, the guy was like unbelievable yeah. what he could do. yeah. You know, you gotta wonder if do. you gotta wonder if if Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig were thinking, "What the hell is Berg doing on our team?" Because they yeah, wouldn't exactly they wouldn't have known he was a spy. <laughs> and that trip that trip to the um, hospital rooftop, he went up there specifically to take photos of the um, Japanese harbors. They wanted to know where the uh, boats and that would be. You know, the Japanese ships. Mm-hmm. So that's what he was doing up there. And like you, like I said, you know, he spoke fluent Japanese. So like the Japanese, see, they just like didn't pay him any mind. They're like, yeah, okay, you know, go see this lady you're supposed to go and see. He and spoke. She even fl- says in a book that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. He says in a book that the, the guy never came to see her. <laughs> <laughs> right. He was too busy up on the roof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he never. Well, anyway, I just want I just I just wanted to tell you about that. Check that book out; it's really good. You'll okay. enjoy it. Okay, thank you, thank you. Fascinating. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, he spoke. What did What did I say? Eleven languages. I mean, so he spoke fluent Italian. If he was able to, you know, he spoke fluent. Ja- Who the hell spoke fluent Japanese in this country? Probably spoke German to have been able to, you know, understand Heisenberg's lecture and the talk. <laughs> wow. Um, Gigi writes, I missed the very beginning of your show, so I don't know if I mentioned, if it, if you mentioned the movie and book, The Catcher Was a Spy, which is a takeoff on The Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Excuse me. The Catcher Was a Spy. Both the book and the movie were wonderful. I love his story, even if some of it may be urban legend. Well, I don't... Uh, the The story I was getting from the Washington Post was that this, this uh, documentarian who's uh, putting out another documentary on him is trying very hard to answer the... The, to fill in the holes, uh, so, but I, I I don't think that the exploits that um, are cataloged throughout all of these things are are urban legend. The guy was amazing. Why would he re- refuse the the honor of the Medal of uh, Freedom? I wonder what a. What a fascinating character. He left no, um, he had a brother and a sister. He had, he never married, although was considered at times a ladies' man. However, others say he was 
I guess we'd say today, gender fluid. Um, but wow, amazing. Anyway, I came upon, and, and this is, if he weren't Jewish, I wouldn't now then be heading into what I'm doing, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do it, because I came upon this on social media um, the other, yesterday, I guess, and um, I wasn't all that surprised because I've seen this thing, this keeps happening. <clears throat> this has to do with, again, identity politics <clears throat> and how they can uh, really muck things up. Identity politics coming from a understandable, empathic, good place where you recognize that some groups have been marginalized, and 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 so you you know you well like the pride parade, okay. But then it never stops with that. Then then the gay community starts splintering into a bunch of different uh, constituencies and groups all demanding. And at, at some point, I just imagine, you know, we're reduced to just each one of us in our own identity, which is probably where we should have been started from in the first place. Uh, all unique. Um, but because there are these uh, pride parades all over the country uh, this weekend uh, and different organizers putting them together, but in one pride, I keep saying pride parade, or I could say pride parade, but I can't say pride parade, but I just did. Anyway, at the parade in Washington, D.C., which is called the D.C. Dyke March. Jewish dykes, <laughs> just staying with the nomenclature here, have been told... that while they're free to march, they cannot carry any stars of David, anything identifying themselves as, as Jews, as gay Jews. And the reason for that is because the Star of David is the prominent symbol, obviously, on the Israeli flag. And a lot of uh, Jewish gay pride people will carry the uh, the uh, rainbow-like Israeli flag with Star of David, or, as many Jews do, they wear a Star of David around their neck. Can't do it. There is no other country's flag that has been banned. 
no other religion that has been told like you can't wear a cross around your neck. And I, I learned about this because a gay Jewish woman who um, gained quite a bit of celebrity um, recently because she was the attorney who argued before the United States Supreme Court <clears throat> uh, in the case that eventually led to winning marriage equality for gays <clears throat> in, in um, this country. She uh, had as her client uh, E.D. Windsor, who brought one of the cases because of her, um, the difficulties that she had to deal with, with her lifelong love and companion, another Jewish woman. All of these women are Jews. Edie Windsor, her spouse, Thea Spire, and the attorney who represented them, Robbie Kaplan. They are all Jews and they are all lesbians. And Robbie Kaplan, along with Edie Windsor, is responsible for the fact that a lot of those a lot of the people in these gay pride gay pride parades around the country this weekend have married or can marry or whatever and yet Robbie Kaplan the attorney is saying I can't march with you you're singling me out culling me because of my religion. And you're doing it, I understand, not to upset Arab or Muslim gays who would also be lesbians, who would also be marching because they don't like Israel. She said that if Edie Windsor were alive, she would be crushed. That there wasn't a gay pride parade that Edie Windsor ever missed. And Robbie Kaplan, the attorney, said, among the many sorrows in our country today is the concerted domestic terrorism aimed at Jews. From Pittsburgh to Poway, and by banning Jewish symbols, the leaders of this gay pride march in our nation's capital are allying themselves, allying themselves with this hate and with this violence. You hear Jews increasingly talking about the anti-Semitism of the left. Here it is. And this has happened before. It happened in Chicago, I, Chicago's March, I believe, last year when uh, 
women who were carrying an Israeli flag and a rainbow flag and proudly proclaiming themselves uh, gay Jews were uh, removed from the parade. I don't even, I can't even. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, yeah, um, I just want you to know that Jews are feeling this uh, hate or revulsion or sense that we are representative of something vile and so horrible you can't be included. And this is where the anti-Israel stuff goes right into anti-Semitism, right into it. If every Jew now is told you cannot wear a symbol of your faith, well, I'm sorry, that's not anti-Israel, that's anti-Semitism. And there's a lot of it happening on the left of the political spectrum now and God knows on the right. And as is so often the case, the, the extremes come together. So we, we shouldn't re really look at, we, we tend to think of uh, our politics on a, on, a, on a linear, in a linear way. We got the center, we got the center left, the center right, we got the uh, we got the this, and we got the real lefties and the real right wingers. But I think, and I know my son has always argued this, that it shouldn't be a line, it should be a circle. Because ultimately, in a lot of ways, those two extremes end up meeting in all kinds of awful ways. In totalitarian governments, in autocratic rulers, in, in this case, hatred of a common group. So I, I, I just think it's um, important to understand that this is going on. It's not getting a lot of coverage and when it does the defensiveness on the left is unbelievable um, and I know one organization of gay Jews uh, has put out a, a statement and, and saying to the extent that organizers of this march intended the ban as a form of protection for queer Palestinians and Arabs, the decision makes queer Jews that much more vulnerable at a time of rising anti-Semitism on the far right and the far left. The DC march should know better than to stoke the flames of division and pain by driving a wedge between queer Arabs and Jews at a time when we must stand united against homophobia and xenophobia and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism.
And that I ain't quite done yet because it leads me to something that I just wanna I just wanna get out of my quiver uh, because I you know sometimes you carry things around you think I'll wait for the right time and I'm thinking there's never gonna be a right time but this again has to do with um, anti-Semitism and and I've told you I always get a little queasy bringing this up because one of the complaints about Jews is they complain about what happened to them, and they should shut the F up already. I understand that. But there was a piece weeks ago in the New York Times Magazine, and it was it was just a snapshot of what's going on right now uh, in Germany with the Jews that live there. Um, I was always startled to know that Jews... Uh, actively uh, you know went back to germany i wouldn't step foot in the goddamn place but there are now 200,000 jews in israel i mean in in germany obviously there were a lot more but uh, we know what happened to them also um i came upon a statistic that blew my mind uh the jewish people have still not replaced how many years? 70 years? 75 years? After the Holocaust ended, Jews have still not replaced the Jews that were lost. In other words, our numbers are, even 75 years after the attempt to kill us all, still under the population of Jews globally that existed prior to the Holocaust. I didn't realize that. Anyway, so it's an article about German Jews. And it was... I. You know, Germany is often uh, said to be one of the few countries who really came to terms with what they had done. I, I would argue South Africa made a pretty good stab at it as well and uh, Germany unlike some countries that have uh, uh, Germany seemed to reckon with its horrific history and past in in a more exemplary fashion than a lot of other nations did and I would argue, perhaps including our own, in regard to what we did to the Native Americans and uh, to uh, African Americans. I don't think we've made a full reckoning at all. Anyway, um, after the war, the Germans bent over backwards. The German political class bent over backwards to try to make amends and uh, they passed all kinds of measures to make it, um, you know, you couldn't, uh, anti-Semitic articles were not allowed, you had to do this, that, the other thing, uh, uh, memorials to the Jews killed were put in prominent places, an effort to uh, do a very public and international uh, mea culpa. 
But this article tells me that under the surface of all of that, and it's not surprising because it's, we see the same here in our country, while people are saying the right things and supposedly doing the right things, underneath there is this growing resentment on the part of many, many Germans and Americans about the guilt that is being put on their shoulders. They don't want it. And they say, enough, enough. You hear it here with white Americans. You hear it in Germany in regard to uh, the Jews. And it led to what some uh, recognize as secondary anti-Semitism. So this is a, and, and this is the kind of thing where I am aware that for a Jew to speak out about Jew hate is uh, something that frankly annoys the hell out of a lot of non-Jews. I know it. But that's a kind of secondary anti-Semitism. That's the annoyance of having to be reminded of what the hell happened. And to see it bubbling up again right in our community. And so these cultures of remembrance stick in the craw of an awful lot of people. There was a survey done in 2015 of Germans and they found that 51 so this is 51% so this is a majority albeit slim of Germans believe that it is probably true that Jews still talk too much about what happened to them in the Holocaust so a majority of Germans say yeah it's probably true I wish they'd shut up And 30% of Germans agreed with the statement, people hate Jews because of the way Jews behave. So, we have one-third of Germans now willing to say, yeah, Jew hate is because of Jews. I mean, excuse me, it ain't my fault. Look at them. They bring it on themselves. Right? This is always the thing. So 200,000 Jews now live in um, Germany. Uh, the German population is 82 million. Okay, so we're talking about an extraordinary drop in the buck bucket. And according to this report, the Jews living in Germany are increasingly living in fear. Eighty-nine percent of Jews surveyed said that anti-Semitism in Germany has become worse in the last five years. <coughs> now, what the Germans are doing and what a lot of these Eastern European countries are doing to uh, explain the rising anti-Semitism in their countries is blaming it on the Muslims that have come into there. So they get a twofer. 
they get to be anti-immigrant <laughs> and anti-Jew and not own, you know, any of it. Um, a Jewish organization, Jews in Germany have a, you know, organ, organized uh, council. And they put out a statement um, three years ago in Germany when uh, anti-immigrant fervor was growing there, threatening Merkel's government. And here was the German Jews statement. Many of the refugees are fleeing the terror of the Islamic State and they want to live in peace and freedom. But at the same time, they do come from cultures in which hatred of Jews and intolerance are an integral part. Um, the far right in Germany has tried to drive a wedge between Jews and the and their home on the left by saying that by trying to make the Jews anti-Muslim more and more so so they've they exploit the divisions and now portray themselves as defenders of Germany's Jews this is the right the right-wing Germans, the, the progeny of the Nazis that exist in Germany in greater numbers than you want to know, uh, now say that they are the defender of German Jews against these Muslims that have come into the country. I don't know if you recall this incident, probably not, because I don't know that it got much attention. It got attention in Jewish media. But um, this was last year, um, in April of 2018. There was a 19-year-old Syrian immigrant of Palestinian descent who went after a young Israeli who was walking on the street. This is happening in Germany. You got an Israeli with a yarmulke on, a head, head skull cap it's called. <clears throat> and this Palestinian young guy takes off his belt and goes after him on, on the street screaming at him. Yehudi, Yehudi, Jew, 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 and just beating the hell out of him. And <clears throat> the young Israeli he was beating up had a cell phone, and while he's being beaten, he's recording it. And um, he said, I wanted to see the world, I wanted the world to see what happens to a Jew on Berlin streets now. <clears throat> and obviously in German media this became a uh, big story and in Jewish media uh, Jews living in Germany were told by the Jewish leadership of the country that they should not wear their yarmulkes anymore in public 
in Germany. To be so identifiable as a Jew is to risk uh, being attacked, and so you should hide your, your Jewishness. Here is another part of the story that's mind-blowing, and it says here, lost in the uproar was the admission by the Israeli who'd been beaten that he was not a Jew. This is mind-blowing. He was an Israeli, but he was an Israeli Arab, and he was wearing a yarmulke because it had been given to him by a friend and who had said, it is not safe for Jews here. And he, this Israeli Arab said, oh, that's baloney. I'm going to put this on, and I'll show you. It's safe. And then he was attacked and shot the attack. So, I just want to leave you with one thing that's, um, that's in the article. German Jews have always had a, um, a phrase, and it's called um, sitting on a packed suitcase. Um, Jews would say we sit on a packed suitcase. We, we, I mean, this is the Jewish experience. It was my grandparents' experience. It was you sit on a packed suitcase because God knows when you got to grab it and run. And after East and West Germany united, after the unification of Germany, many Jews that were living in Germany truly feared that this would cause a new nationalist revival, which would not be good for them. That did not seem to happen. In fact, the European Union, uh, which was created to tamp down nationalism, that's what, that's what the EU was about. Let's get together and so that we don't start this stuff up again and after the EU and things calmed down the Jews of Germany got off their packed suitcases and put the suitcases away so for the last 30 years or 40 years 30 maybe they've been feeling comfortable but not, not in the last four. He says, the sense of security has eroded. While German Jews aren't heading for the exit yet, he said, they are thinking, now where did I put that suitcase? Everything old is new again. So, uh, sorry for the bummer, but I just needed to draw these lines between what is happening at the Washington, D.C. march with Jews, what happened last year in Chicago, 
German Jews being told, don't let yourself look too Jewish, you'll be attacked. Anyone who thinks, and if, if people like don't like Jews talking about rising anti-Semitism, well, sorry, because I know this Jew is going to keep talking. Because it ain't going away, it just seems to keep increasing. And as I said, we feel it coming from both sides. In the same vein, David Brooks writing today is talking about the narrative he grew up with as a child in uh, this country about what this country was. It's the same narrative you grew up with probably and me too. You know, we are a great nation, a nation unlike any other. And there is some truth in that. And then there's a lot of stuff we left out. The stuff that's not flattering. The stuff that is like really horrific. And here's what he writes. We all know the narrative we got from our educations as children about America. And he said... Look at Trump's narrative. Trump's narrative, he said, can be boiled down to we real Americans, that would be white, these we real Americans have to protect our culture from the alien who would weaken it. And the alien, read brown, black, anybody who doesn't look like us, white. The opposing narrative to Trump's narrative is something like this, and it's pretty much my narrative too. America began with a crime, stealing this land from the Native Americans. It continued with an atrocity, after the crime, we then did an atrocity, and that was slavery. The American story is the conflict between oppressors who seek to preserve white supremacy and people who seek to move beyond it. The essential American struggle is to confront the national sin, have a racial reckoning, and then seek reconciliation. That's what I believe this country has yet to do and needs to. And both of these narratives have taken on the qualities of kind of a religious moral framework. So that, and we believe them with that kind of fervor, so that Trump followers... Uh, fervently believe that this land is their land, this land's not your land, from California to the, you know, Gulf Stream waters. They see in an almost religious fervor 
that the country and the narrative they subscribe to is being destroyed. Back to David Brooks. Both, uh, okay, uh, in the progressive narrative, racism has the exact same structure as John Calvin's conception of original sin. I have always said it's our nation was born in original sin, and it is racism. And if you look at it that way, as our original sin, it is seen as a corrupting group inheritance. It is a collective guilt that pervades everything. It is in the structures of our society and the invisible crannies of our brains. It is in our blood and bones that is clear. And then David Brooks says this, I don't know about you, but I walk into this next chapter of American life with a sense of hopefulness, that's not me, and yet great fear. I'm with him there. America needs to have a moment of racial reconciliation, he says. History has thrown this task on us. But we Americans are not at our best when we launch off on holy wars. Because he's saying we're now in these two sort of religious camps and the odds are we ain't going to do this well. He says once you start assigning guilt to groups rather than to individuals, bad, illiberal things happen. There's a lot of ever overgeneralized group accusation in both Trump's narrative and our, my narrative, he says. Okay, just putting that out there. But that same, well, never mind. It just all sort of flows together, doesn't it? I want to point out something that's just mind-blowing actually how you had all the major automakers uh, signing off on a on a letter I believe they wrote right a statement of some sort telling Trump that what he's doing dismantling the pollution standards for auto makers is something they don't want now you know he and his crowd are doing it because they just can't stop they can't stop dismantling anything done in the prior eight years under Barack Obama when these pollution standards for autos were tightened considerably in response to climate change and the automobile's place in creating it and correcting it. 
And so Trump and his minions just assume that they want all these regulations canceled. They don't. The world's largest automakers warned President Trump on Thursday that one of his most sweeping deregulatory efforts, the plan to weaken tailpipe pollution standards, threatens to cut their profits and produce untenable instability in their crucial manufacturing sector. Say what? Yeah, unbelievable. This letter is signed by Ford, by General Motors, by Toyota, by Volvo, uh, you name it, 17 automakers <laughs> said to Trump, you fool, stop it. And I thought, huh, why? You would think they would like that, right? No. Here's why. California has stricter standards than the federal rules. And, in fact, uh, 13 other states also do. So, if Trump imposes this rule, those states are going to immediately sue and insist that they will continue to enforce the stricter standards. So what's an automaker to do? Do you make your cars to fit California, where an awful lot of cars get sold, or do you make your cars to... And so it creates for them this long period of throwing it all into the courts, and the instability of knowing what to manufacture going forward and also creates a split marketplace for the automakers. Who do you make the cars for? They don't want that. So as with so many things coming out of this White House, I don't think they thought it through. What is this? There's been two alligators caught in Pittsburgh in the last two days? Alligators! I, when I first saw that, I thought, well, it might be some little thing. No! Five-foot alligators. One was found it, wandering around in Beachview yesterday, and then there was another one on the uh, south side. Alligators! Let me tell you something. They are not native to Pittsburgh, PA. A woman walking her dog in Beachview sees an alligator. <laughs> I have to admit, if I saw an alligator, I would be really stuck. What is with people? Damn. As usual, behind this, these poor animals who don't belong here and are trying just to live is some idiot human being who probably got a little alligator when he went to Florida or something as a gift or giving it to his kid. And then lo and behold, that little alligator got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and finally got scary and they got scared. And so what did they do? 
I don't know. What'd they do? They threw the alligator out into the woods somewhere. Oh, I'm just telling you, there's alligators out there. Jeez. Hey, you see Joe Biden's reversal? My God, makes your head spin. Yesterday I was squawking about how he still supports the Hyde Amendment that prevents Medicaid recipients from accessing uh, abortion services. And uh, there was such a... wasn't just me squawking yesterday. He totally did a 180. Which doesn't make me happy. Because that means that what? He doesn't really have principles. <laughs> he was sticking with Hyde because that's really what he thinks. And as soon as it was politically unfeasible, apparently, he decides, oh, yes, I don't think that. You know, acting like good old politician, Joe. And I, you know, I, Joe. And I, I love him. I, I like the character that he is. But damn. This is going to be such a painful period uh, for Democrats. I am not looking forward to it at all. At all. And also, did you see... Um, I saw this too on social media. Which I am going off of cold turkey starting right after the show. Maybe. Uh, Sean Hannity on Fox last night said this. This is because of Pelosi saying, I don't want to impeach him. I want to see him in prison. Okay? Here's what Sean Hannity said about that. Based on no actual crimes, Pelosi wants a political opponent locked up in prison. That's the kind of thing that happens in banana republics. It's beyond despicable. Um, Sean. How can you say that? I mean, how do they say such things with a straight face when the whole, all, all his preferred candidate, Donald Trump, does when he goes out to whip up some hatred and votes? All he does is what? Get his people to scream what? Lock her up. Lock her up. And he can literally look at his audience with a straight face. And I suppose they take it in. And are ho I bet they didn't even... Do, do they not get the irony? I mean, do they not... What is the... Based on no actual crimes, Pelosi wants a political opponent locked up in prison. Despicable. it's why I'm taking the week off. You can take just so much of that kind of thing. 
and then your head starts exploding. So have a nice week off, not being depressed or harangued by yours truly, and uh, I'll see you a week from Monday, whatever the heck that is, okay? Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.